Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Afternoon, Jim. Good to see you again. Lots to talk about, as usual. Uh, I know that you've got some interesting observations on the IDA annual report that has recently, very recently been published. And that's going to lead us into a broader discussion about things US, things FDI, and in particular, whether or not these OECD tax tax proposals Uh, are going to make much of a difference to Ireland, even if they go ahead, which I think is probably open to some question, or at least I think you're going to raise that question. The relationship between uh, an errant Democratic senator seems to be playing a lot uh, of important roles in US politics. But I'm going to start not with COVID corner, but with a COVID rant. And I promise this is only going to take a couple of minutes. I've Today, been involved in a Twitter exchange with a what I think is an anti-vaxxer because I posted something uh, on Twitter about some data from the United States about the difference that vaccines are making to uh, various outcomes, and that data is very clear. It's clear in the United States uh, and it's clear elsewhere. But that particular data, I think, is very useful in a number of regards. Firstly, it's succinct. So this is from the Center for Disease Control, the main health authority in the United States. And the up-to-date data says that in terms of people getting COVID, in the unvaccinated, it's currently 451 per 100,000 people in the US. 
For vaccinated, that drops from 451 to 134. So that speaks to vaccines not having perfect efficacy for getting COVID, but some efficacy. Uh, For those that have been boosted, so we've gone from 451 per 100,000 to 134 for the double vaxxed. And for the boosted, the third vaccine, uh, we now are at 48 cases per 100,000. So that's a huge drop. It says that vaccines are not perfect. They don't prevent everybody from getting COVID, but they are preventing a lot of people. Now, for the unvaccinated, this is where the rubber hits the road. There are 6.1 deaths in the United States per 100,000 people. That 6.1 drops to 0.5 per 100,000 for the doubly vaccinated and 0.1 deaths, 0.1 deaths per 100,000 for those that have had the third vaccine. This and lots of other data like it point to vaccines doing a fantastic job. The unvaccinated fall into a number of categories uh, from what I can see. And the two main ones are the ones that are misinformed and those are the people that are getting their information that says the vaccines do this, do that, but what they don't do is what they're supposed to do. And we know that that, from the data that I've just cited and from lots of other data, is complete garbage. And the two things I'd say about that is that social media companies bear a grave responsibility for this dissemination about vaccines that's being promoted. And governments everywhere have done an absolutely crap job in publicizing the sort of data that I have just read out. And that if more of this data was put in front of people in simple concise forms in the way that I just did, I think that we would have a lot less anti-vaxxers around the place. The other type of anti-vaxxer is the libertarian wingnut. And that's the kind of person that I am getting, unfortunately and stupidly, from my own perspective, involved with on social media, who cite all sorts of conspiracy theories as to why um, they are not getting vaccinated. And in particular, the libertarian argument, which is that consent should always be freely given you cannot and should not be coerced into getting a vaccine and that they cite Nazi Germany, the Nuremberg principles and all sorts of garbage about why um, confronting the anti-vaxxers is absolutely wrong. I agree wholeheartedly that consent is very important, that nobody should be forced by rule of law to get vaccine, as some countries are trying to do. I don't think this is something that we should try in either Britain or Ireland. That would be a step too far for me. And on that, I would agree with the libertarians. But where I part company is this idea that their liberty gives them the right to have consequence-free decisions. The consequences of not being vaccinated are that the the potential overwhelming of our health services, the fact that people with cancer and heart disease and other critical illnesses are being forced to the back of the queue is in no small part, not entirely, but in no small part due to these selfish actions of the libertarian, unvaccinated, right-wing wingnuts, as as I call them. So I do think that if this point about consequence-free decision-making is the important one, and I think that methods should be found to uh, force these people to live up to the consequences of their decisions, not by forcing them to get vaccine, but by doing things like barring them from certain activities, I think vaccine passports are a great idea. Uh, the, The final thing that I would say about the libertarian argument is that it falls down completely when you consider what it's allowing the anti libertarian, uh, sections of our governments to do. Now, governments are putting restrictions on us for a number of reasons. One is 
Um, they're chaotic in their decision-making and they're making hopeless decisions. They're making decisions not based on evidence. There's no evidence uh, that I can see that says that COVID will be reduced by shutting the pubs at eight o'clock, et cetera, et cetera. The Welsh government has, for example, now banned all uh, spectators at sporting activities, flying in the face of the evidence that from the autumn internationals, for example, there was no upsurge in COVID in Wales as a result of uh, 75,000 people cramming into pubs, the stadium and pubs and clubs afterwards. So evidence-free policy making is what the anti-vaxxers are allowing these people to do. They're allowing our governments to be chaotic. They're allowing our governments to be stupid. And they're allowing the, the control freaks within our government to release their inner traffic warden and do the anti-libertarian thing. So libertarianism is leading to anti-libertarianism. And, and if you want to feed my conspiracy theories, is that the control freaks in government are delighted with this social experiment that they are being allowed to conduct on us in no small part due to the anti-vaxxers. End of rant, Jim. I'm going to hand over to you now, and we're going to talk about something completely different, um, thank God. And would you please uh, enlighten us as to the, I think, very uh, positive story that's emerging from what the IDA have been up to over the last year? Right, Chris. Um, that's interesting stuff uh, about the anti-vaxxers and so on. I'm surprised, actually, that you would get involved in that sort of online spat. With I surprised myself, Jim. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I get stuff and I just ignore it. I never or very rarely get involved in any sort of spat on Twitter. I just think it, it isn't worth it. And it's certainly a no-win situation. Um, as you know, eight o'clock last night, the restricted opening hours for restaurants and pubs was introduced in this country. Um, I, I think, okay, there was there, there, there was a lot of um, disquiet last Friday night when it was initially announced. Um, I, I, I guess we can all argue that this, this is sort of evidence, not evidence-based policymaking by the Neffert and the government. Um, well, I guess it's Neffert rather than the government because Neffert is running the show, not the government in any event. Um, but, I mean, Tony Hulhan has come out saying that these latest measures should cut socialisation by about 30%. And, you know, he believed that that could be sufficient along with all of the other measures to help us get on top of the Omicron um, variant. So t time will answer that question. But... Um, I certainly know the young people are not happy in the week leading up to Christmas being forced to be home at eight o'clock. Well, forced to leave the pub and the restaurant at eight o'clock. Um, certainly not very happy myself, uh, but there's not a lot we can do about it. Um, moving back to the question you asked me to address, uh, the IDA. And as you know, the IDA has responsibility for attracting foreign direct investment into the country. And um, I have to say, it does an absolutely fantastic job in that regard, particularly over the last couple of years in very difficult circumstances. A couple of weeks early, the IDA has just released its annual results. Um, it normally does it around the 6th or 7th of January, but for some reason, the annual results for 2021 were released yesterday. Uh, there was 29,057 new jobs created by IDA supported companies during 2021. Um, some jobs were lost, as is always the case, but the net gain in jobs is 16,826. So we now have 
275,384 people working in IDA-supported companies, um, and that's over 11% of total employment in the economy. And of course, for every one job in a multinational company, there is another 0.8% of a job supported in the rest of the economy. So an incredibly important part of the economy. And as I say, the IDA is doing a superb job, in my view, in attracting investment into the country. Last year, well, sorry, this year, 2021, there was 249 new investments and 104 of those were from new names that had not invested here before. And 53% of those or 133 investments actually went to regional locations. So we now have, at this point in time, 45% of IDA-supported jobs in Dublin, 17% in the southwest, and then the rest are spread uh, throughout the rest of the region. So Dublin, really, in the southwest um, account for the bulk of foreign direct investment jobs. So no, no surprises there. But the IDA has a very specific strategy of ensuring that at least 50% of new jobs coming in are in the regions outside of Dublin. And um, it's an incredible story, really. We now have 1,700 multinational corporations operating out of Ireland in areas like technology, pharma, medical technology, which is a big growth area, international financial services, and then engineering in food. Uh, so it's, 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 it's a good story. It is certainly another good news story for Ireland in what has been a very challenging year. And, you know, you wouldn't envy somebody like the IDA going out there in an environment like this, trying to attract new investment into a country. Uh, But they're succeeding admirably. And um, there's a couple of things that strike me about all of this. Um, Over the last 12 months and a little bit before that, but particularly in the last 12 months, it has come to a head, the whole global reform of corporation tax and um, it it is envisaged certainly not certain but it is envisaged that in 2023 a minimum corporation tax rate of 15 percent could be introduced and other changes to the way in which multinational companies are up operate in other words there is a move to try and ensure they at least pay some tax in the jurisdiction where the economic activity occurs rather than where the balance sheet resides. And I think the important thing from an Irish perspective is that Ireland would be identified by many as a country that could be adversely affected by these tax changes. Okay, And yet, at the same time, multinational companies continue to invest aggressively here. So clearly, they are not concerned about the possible changes to the corporation tax environment they face in this country. And that would lead me to believe that, and I've kind of always believed this to a certain extent, but there are a lot of other factors other than corporation tax attracting those multinational companies into this country. Uh, We obviously, speaking English um, is good for US companies. Um, An English-speaking country with free access to the European Union market is important. And indeed, with the exception of Malta, Ireland is now the only native English-speaking country in the European Union. So that has to count. Also, the quality of the labour force we're able to offer here is very, very important. Um, So I I think more than anything else is that labour supply is the most important driver. 
Um, but other things are obviously important. Um, we need to ensure that you know we get on top of the housing situation. We need to ensure that we continue to provide the physical space for those multinationals to operate in. And, and that's where the whole construction industry, I think, has a key part to play in the ongoing success of foreign direct investment into the country. And indeed, I would argue that the construction sector has been instrumental in facilitating flows of foreign direct investment into the country in recent years. So it's it's a good story. But getting back to that OECD corporation tax reform, um, it's as I say, it is due to be implemented in 2023. But we always recognise there were two significant obstacles. One was um, the EU governments have to agree to this. And the question is how they intend to transpose these new changes into um, national tax legislation. So that was one element of uncertainty. But by far, the bigger element of uncertainty concerns the ability of President Biden to actually get Congress to agree to these tax changes, because it means that U.S. multinationals um, you know, w- will have to pay a certain minimum amount of tax in the United States, as in 15 percent. And within the Republican Party are elements of the Republican Party that doesn't go down well. But of course, there are also politics at play here, the very partisan and divided nature of the U.S. political system. So Biden is going to struggle to get Congress to agree to these tax changes. And of course, if agreement isn't reached soon, it will prove extremely difficult to implement those changes by 2023. Um, it, I, I guess a source of hope here for those who want this legislation passed is that um, you described him in the introduction as a rogue senator in Coleridge, West Virginia, Joe Manchin, a Democrat. Um, he has agreed to reopen talks with Biden about the economic stimulus package uh, because apparently he's come under pressure from the coal mining unions in his state of West Virginia to actually um, start talking to Biden about the economic stimulus package. So m- maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. But um, in terms of this OECD tax deal, we just watch what US Congress does over the coming weeks and months to see if those changes will see the light of day. And um, I have to say, even if they do see the light of day, I'd still be incredibly optimistic about Ireland's ability to continue to perform strongly in the FDI arena. And I don't think these tax changes, if implemented, will make very much difference to Ireland's performance. And in fact, it is possible, actually, that Ireland could benefit from this, particularly in terms of the corporation tax take. So um, as we end the year, it's a good news story. Yeah, I think there are several dimensions to that that really interest me, particularly the ones uh, perhaps that are less than obvious. One of the things that Ireland offers, as you say, is an English-speaking country, one of the very few in the European Union, one of two, as you say. Uh, the other thing, with uh, after Brexit, of course, is that it, the UK has become a less attractive option in terms of access to the all-important European market. The other thing about this is that Ireland, as it currently stands, offers a politically stable and a politically predictable country. It's, you know, a a decently run country. 
in the eyes of these multinationals, at least, if not in the eyes of the Irish population, who clearly want, as we've said many times, according to opinion polls, a change of government. But I think that stable and predictable government thing is critically important for FDI, for these companies who are thinking of locating somewhere in Europe, because that's, for obvious reasons, uh, what they want. Um, So I I do think that uh, Ireland needs to think very carefully about whether or not it wants to remain a politically stable and politically uh, coherent country, because the UK is clearly gone down the road of something approaching a rogue state with a prime minister clearly not fit for purpose, Boris Johnson, as we know, uh, as we always knew, and has revealed himself to be consistent with what we thought we knew before, as um, temperamentally unfit to lead a country, and has appointed a cabinet of of nothings, really, to support him in that. And every day there is something that comes out that is consistent with that, the latest being the flip-flopping over whether or not he's going to introduce new restrictions for COVID. We won't talk about COVID anymore on this podcast, at least not not in this one. So I do think Ireland needs to think very carefully about its offering to foreign multinationals in the round and um, the way in which it's, you know, quite a good place. And this uh, modern dystopia that some politicians and some commentators paint of, of Ireland is not actually backed up by hard data by the evidence, by what people are doing with their money, with their with their investments. So I think the political dimension, as well as the economic one, the economic attractiveness to Ireland via taxes, education, labour force, and all the rest of it, is important. But as important is this political point. Uh, Ireland does offer that stability that that these companies want. The second thing about what you said that struck me was about Joe Manchin and the the rogue senator. One of the reasons for his opposition to Biden's Build Back Better bill um, was the amount that it would add to the debt. And he seems to have got a bee in his bonnet about debt. And far be it from me to comment about that. I'll just refer you to something that uh, Paul Krugman has been saying today. He's, he's saying two things. Uh, one, that if Joe Manchin is wor- is worried about a massive increase in debt... Uh, the bond market, that all-important financial market in the United States, clearly isn't. Uh, the bond market is behaving very, very well. It's not at all concerned about uh, debt levels now or prospective debt levels in the future, given how much Joe Biden wanted to spend and clearly still does. If anything, it's grown more sanguine about the impact on the economy, particularly inflation, but other things as well. And he's tweeted a chart of something called break-even inflation, which goes back to all of the things that we've been talking about, inflation and where it's going, why it's a problem, and what it might actually do in the future. And inflation expectations can be measured from the bond market. And bizarrely, Jim, they've been falling um, as inflation itself has been rising. Now, that's consistent because inflation might fall, but the bond market is saying explicitly, don't worry about the debt, don't worry about the economy, don't worry about inflation, which is interesting from an empirical data-driven point of view. The second thing that Krugman has been saying is that if you're going to use staggering debt as an excuse to block social programs and climate action, there are plenty of very, very serious economists. And for all of Joe Manchin's qualifications, I suspect serious economists would not be a label we'd apply to him. 
Um, they disagree with Mr. Manchin and that debt is vastly overrated as a concern. And Krugman has tweeted a link to Olivier Blanchard's book about all of this. Blanchard is an eminent professor of economics, an ex-chief economist at the IMF, so he's absolutely well credentialed. And in an era of low interest rates, of course, debt is not the problem that anybody used to think that it was. So serious economists are blowing a big fat raspberry at Joe Manchin's arguments for shooting down Joe Biden's social programs in particular and his next stimulus package in general. So I sincerely hope from an economist's point of view that uh, the discussions with uh, President Biden go well and that something is able to be done because America certainly, certainly needs it. Yeah. um, Reverting back to what you were saying there about the FDI performance here in Ireland, um, it goes without saying that two really important things are political stability and certainty. And secondly, having a pro-business environment. Um, I think those two things are really important and we need to be very, very careful about over the next couple of years if we instigate political change that actually threatens those. I'm not saying it necessarily will, but I think it's something we need to be very mindful of because those FDI jobs are spread all over the country and are really, really important part of our economic model at this stage, alongside the SME sector, obviously. But the FDI piece is really important. Chris, this is our last podcast of 2021. And I, and I guess there's little point in going back over the past year. We've lived through it. Um, I think it's top of mind for most of us. But looking ahead to 2022, um, first of all, I'd like to give you my views, if I may, on you know what what I think we will be looking at from both an economic and political perspective, and um, I'd, I'd like you to listen to my list to see uh, number one if I'm wrong, number two if I'm missing anything, and I guess number three if if you know you have any observations in general. Um, I think from an economic point of view, one of the most topical things that will continue to dominate will be the attitude of central banks to inflation. And that whole argument about the transitory nature or otherwise of inflation. Um, I think a second economic stroke financial issue that will need to be closely watched is the debt situation, the construct, the property related debt situation in China. Um, I think the Evergrande story, which continues to evolve, uh, should send out a very strong warning signal about the stability of China. And of course, as the world's second biggest economy, what happens in China does matter. But I also think that political events uh, will actually be much more interesting than economic events. Of course, I totally accept and understand that these political events have a way of directly feeding into economic outcomes. But the political events that strike me uh, that will be really interesting, and there are a number of them in 2022, the U.S. midterm elections in November, they're going to be incredibly important. Um, based on what we see at the moment, it is highly likely or highly possible that the Democrats will lose control of both houses and that the Trump or some Trumpian candidate will then be set up for a run at the big job two years later. Second, in April of this year, on the 10th of April, we have the first round of the French presidential election. And... Um, you know, whether Macron succeeds in re-election or not, 
does remain to be seen. But I think what's really important and significant about the French presidential election is the fact that um, with Angela Merkel's 16-year reign in Germany just ended with the accession to power of Olaf Scholz. Um, You know, he hasn't his feet under the table yet. So there is a whole question mark, I guess, at an EU level about the de facto leader of Europe. Will it be the French president or will it be eventually Olaf Schultz again? I think that would be an interesting dynamic. Uh, Boris Johnson in the UK, I know that's something that's very close to your heart. Uh, It will be interesting to see if he survives the next six months. It will also be interesting to see what sort of impact the exit stage left of David Frost um, and his replacement by the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss will have on the Brexit situation. And from an Irish perspective, the question there is, um, will Truss actually uh, revert to a situation where she was a Remainer and she'll become much more accommodating towards the European Union? Or will she actually double down on the sort of anti-EU strategy that Frost uh, drove over the last um, couple of years. Um, I suspect it's the latter rather than former, given that um, I think Trust she wants the top job and she probably realises correctly that to get the top job, she will have to be as anti-EU as possible. But I think it'll be an interesting dynamic. We have the ongoing relationship between China and the West And that is being manifested, or the problems there are manifest again in the Winter Olympics in China in March, where, you know, the US, okay, the US is participating, but it's not going to send a delegation over. I think Australia is the same. So that whole, that's just symptomatic of the growing tensions between uh, the two superpowers, China and the United States. There is the ongoing relationship between Putin's Russia and the West. There is the situation with the Russian massing of troops on the Ukrainian border. And um, uh, a friend of mine from the Ukraine was saying to me recently, he is really concerned about going back to the Ukraine because of the fears that there will be a Russian invasion at some stage. And from a European perspective, uh, one of the side effects of that would be serious disruption to natural gas supplies into um, the European Union. So there's, there's economics and politics at play there. Um, so that's pretty much the political and economic agenda as I see it in 2022. Your reaction? I think you summarised it very well. The um, the things that you list are all uh, real and, as you say, very important. I once began a year ahead, look, peace, many years ago when I was working as a professional economist with the words expect the unexpected and everything that you read after this opening paragraph will turn out in all probability to be wrong. And for that, that, that's the nearest I've ever come in my career to being fired because my my then boss took grave exception to to that opening paragraph. So anything I say about the future always comes heavily caveated. I think the Russian thing is, is very serious um, and is clearly uh, has the risk of getting worse before it gets better. The most sinister thing that I've read about that, the most sinister detail, is that one of the things that's happening on that Russia-Ukraine border, apart from the troop build-up, is a build-up of field hospitals. Now, you don't do that if you don't expect something quite nasty to be happening. 
And it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if Putin does invade Ukraine. There's a historic perspective to this. If you read the most recent edition of The Economist, there's an interesting section that discusses the historic relationship between Russia and Ukraine and the way in which those two countries have been linked for centuries and in some broad Russian empire type situation, they've often been seen as one or very heavily integrated. And Putin is what they call a revanchist, which is a man who is bent on revenge for loss of empire and is very upset to the present day over the way in which the old Soviet Union collapsed over 30 years ago and clearly has designs on on Ukraine. If they do invade, it will be a very serious event. But NATO, the United States and Europe will do nothing uh, militarily, uh, would be my expectation. Uh, They'll do a few sanctions type things. And Ukraine will be a horrible place because there'll be a lot of um, awful violence, um, death and destruction. uh, And Putin will win because the Ukrainian army is generally reckoned I don't know anything about this, but experts say they are in no position to militarily resist a Russian takeover. So if it happens, I think it will be horrible. Then it will all settle down and Ukraine will once again be in Russia's orbit and the West having done very little to stop it from happening. They'll do something, but they won't do very much. Uh, And the the other things that you mentioned are also um, very important. One of them that interests me a lot, as you say, it's close to my heart, is the the appointment of Liz Truss as the Brexit negotiator-in-chief. So it'll be 2022, and we are still going to be negotiating Brexit. Years after the referendum, next June will be the sixth anniversary of the referendum, and we're now a couple of years into Britain actually having formally left the European Union. So um, it, it goes on and on. And I don't expect that to change very much because, as you say, Truss has two possibilities. One is simply to double down on David Frost's approach, which is the hardline confrontational approach with the European Union. And the reason why she will do that is, as you say, to garner support from the wingnuts of the Tory party who will expect nothing less from her if she is to be the next leader. The sensible, intelligent, politically mature response from Trust would be to reset the relationship with the EU, to take Brexit as done, as given, and to forge the new relationship properly, to take it away from where it is at the moment, which is at rock bottom, as bad as it has ever been, worse probably, and to try and forge new alliances, new relationships across a whole range of political and economic spheres. Uh, She won't do that is my expectation, although that would be the politically mature thing to do, as I say, because she is, like all of the other members of the cabinet, uh, all the way up to Johnson, an empty suit. She will just be strategizing to try and take over the Tory party if and when Johnson goes. Uh, The problem that she's got is that all of this rhetoric, all of this bluster that she comes out with and has come out with as foreign secretary uh, is is all very well, but doesn't confront what uh, she is now going to have to confront for the first time in her uh, term of office as as a cabinet minister is that she's going to have to meet reality. And reality did for Frost, because reality is what it is, does what it says on the tin. And the reality is that uh, they will either accept a border in the Irish Sea, the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice, 
or they will have probably a trade war with the European Union, which would be devastating for everybody concerned, not least the British economy. So I don't see that getting any better. And I think that it's quite probable, Jim, that this time next year, should we still be doing this podcast, we will be talking about drearily this same kind of stuff. In terms of where the world economy is going, if all of these political developments don't come to pass in a horribly negative way, I'd be quite optimistic. Um, that You have to caveat all that with you know variants and COVID and all that kind of very obvious stuff. But even then, I think that uh, we are set for a, re- a pretty decent year. Uh, it could easily be derailed by policy mistakes. Uh, it, there is a concern that monetary policy is going to be tightened too quickly. There is a concern that all of this fiscal stimulus is also going to be switched off too quickly as well. But for all the caveats, I remain quietly optimistic. Because frankly, that's always the right thing to do for the world economy. It takes quite a lot to knock it seriously off course. Um, One of the problems that it faces is a very heavily overvalued US stock market. And that's something I could have said pretty much any time, I don't know, most of my career. And at some point, one must think that the, the US stock market will come down to earth. There's no particular reason to expect why it would happen next year. It might. Um, but if I was looking at stock markets and thinking about what 2022 holds for those, I would say that uh, non-US equity markets hold much more interest for me than the, than the US market as a whole. Um, but I, I remain slightly concerned about what the US market might do to everybody else's. But provided that optimism about the world economy um, stays in place and inflation doesn't take off from here, uh, then I would be optimistic about markets as well. Um, so I think that probably um, is the point at which I should shut up. One could go on forever about caveating one's one's forecasts, but I, I'd like to leave at this difficult time for all of us um, an impression of, of, of quiet, tentative optimism. Great. Uh, I, I guess one thing I should have said that goes without saying, um, and it was the same this time last year, uh, epidemiology rather than economic fundamentals um, certainly will dominate the near-term outlook for policy on the world economy because uh, obviously we're now in the in the throes of what is the fourth wave and uh, there's a vast amount of uncertainty surrounding all of that. Uh, but hopefully the, you know, the vaccine program will work and hopefully it will be brought under control without too much damage. So that, I suppose, is the big caveat more than anything else about uh, my sense of optimism, and I do share your optimism about prospects for 2022 at an economic and financial market level. And I also uh, would share those views for the Irish economy. Uh, 2021 was a tremendous year for the economy at an aggregate level. Of course, there were sectors who performed poorly because of COVID-related restrictions, but in the aggregate, the economy performed very strongly. And um so I think maybe we'll leave it there. Um, yeah, if I could just yeah. wish you a very happy Christmas, Jim, and of course, all our listeners. It's been an interesting year for us on the podcast. We started it this year and we haven't had our first anniversary yet. That comes at the, in the first quarter of next year. Um, but we've had an awful lot of fun doing it and we get a lot of feedback, um, most of it positive, uh, which is great. And if our listeners could do us a favor at this Christmas time, because we, we don't charge anything or ask anybody to make any contribution to this podcast, we do it 
for the love of it. Uh, we don't attract any sponsorship and we don't have any advertising. So um, if, if anybody wants to do us a favor, um, it would be great. Let us know what you think of the podcast. Um, give us some suggestions for topics. Give us some suggestions for guest speakers. And perhaps equally importantly, please share it with your friends on social media or whatever way you communicate with your friends. Let them know that this podcast exists and that you thought that it's um, at times at least been well worth listening to. That would help us enormously and encourage us to keep going because obviously it would be nice to keep this going and for it to be a success. The one gratifying thing uh, out of many that we've had from doing this is that we've been at or very near the top of the Apple business podcast charts for Ireland pretty much all year, which was more success than we expected, um, but it's been great. But it would be nice if we could build on that. And um, this is a small Christmas appeal to our listeners to give us a little helping hand into kicking on from here. So have a good Christmas, Jim. And, yeah, um, I'd, I'd, I'd like to reinforce all of those sentiments, Chris, uh, wishing you a happy Christmas, wishing all our Listeners, a happy Christmas and a great 2022. Um, as you say, we are approaching the end of our first calendar year um, as podcasters. And this idea of a podcast last February came from the fact that over many years, virtually every day of the week, we talk at some stage during the day where we have discussion about financial markets, about economics, about politics. And uh, we just got a brainwave in the middle of lockdown that it might be nice to start uh, trying to record some of this just to see if there's any appetite out there for it. So I, I hope there is. Uh, I hope people enjoy it. And, you know, we would we would love to get feedback um, and so on about the podcast. So listen, thanks a million. It's been a great year. Um, talk to you in January. Yeah. Have a good one, Jim. All the best to you. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.